Welcome to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF. Good Saturday evening to you. Jason Kong here along with the usual cast. We've got Cooper Linton with Transitions Life Care. Cooper, how are you? Doing well this evening, Jason. Thank you. Excellent. And we've got Nicole Bruno with Transitions Guiding Lights, coffee in hand, of course. Yes, yes. And the next time you introduce me, I'll have a new last name. Oh, man. I've got, we've got to change the banners here in the studio, uh, all the liners. This is. Are you sure we want to go down this route? Are you sure you don't? Is there going to be a hyphenation or are we going? There's going to be a full rebranding. Yeah. You know, we're going to be working on the rebrand of my name and we'll, we'll, we'll disclose that next okay. time. Okay. Well, I'll get the press releases <laughs> ready and it's, it's going to be a big to do. But a little uh, transition. Up the transition. Ah, I like oh, what you did there. Well, Cooper, we are, uh, you know, we run to the beat of our own drum here on Aging Matters, and heart health is the month of February. But you know what? 28 days just isn't enough for us to talk about heart health. We're, we're going to extend that a little bit here. We're, we're creeping into March. How about that? Well, you know, I think that's fine. I think most of us keep our hearts working most of the year, so yeah. we can continue to talk about it most in March. We're actually, we've touched on some things earlier in the month, just kind of in, in general about what is heart health, but we wanted to take a deeper dive into issues related to heart failure. And people get nervous and they don't like to talk about heart failure, but the truth is it's a very common illness in the United States. It's a common illness that affects our listenership. And so we're privileged to bring in actually an expert in this, uh, Dr. Priyesh Patel, uh, who is an advanced heart failure specialist with Wake Med Heart and Vascular, and he's also an assistant professor at Duke University. Dr. Patel, thank you for joining us to talk about heart failure. Thank you for having me. So can we start with what's heart failure? <laughs> Great question. This is uh, one that is, uh, I think, confuses a lot of people because you hear the term heart failure and you're get really scared because you think, oh my gosh, is my heart failing? Am I going to die? And so yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I want to kind of dispel any thoughts about that. Say heart failure is does not mean that you're imminently dying, but it does mean that your heart has become impaired and just can't circulate blood efficiently anymore. And that can happen either because the heart muscle gets weak, possibly happen because the heart muscle gets stiff. Uh, but ultimately leads to um, a situation where the heart is not circulating blood efficiently, which can lead to symptoms of congestion, such as getting shorter breath when you try to walk, uh, swelling in your legs, abdominal distension, poor appetite, um, difficulty lying flat when you sleep, uh, all sorts of things that, um, you know, that suggest that you're just not moving blood forward throughout the body. So when we say congestion, particularly when we get into the springtime around here, everybody thinks it's related to having seasonal allergies and runny noses. We're, we're talking about a different type of congestion totally. Right. We're talking about vascular congestion. And so the way to think about it is the heart uh, pumps blood throughout the body and you know all the, the blood goes forward and then it has to be received back into the heart. And so if the heart isn't emptying like it should and pumping blood throughout the body, that blood that's returning basically backs up because it's just not being pushed forward. And you get vascular congestion, which can manifest as fluid inside the lungs, which can make you shorter breath, or fluid inside your belly or your legs, et cetera, that can make you feel distended or even have uh, uh, swelling in the legs that you can see with pitting when you try to push on your legs, for example. 
So one of the things that you mentioned, which I think sometimes confuses people, you talked about the heart muscle actually getting weak. Um, that might be confusing to folks listening because you really your heart's just pumping all day long, and how could it possibly get weak when it's exercising itself? Mm-hmm. Talk to us a little bit about that. So I, the analogy that I use for all of my patients is that the heart is a muscle just like a lot of other parts of your body. And so, for example, if you hurt your back or you hurt your knee and then you keep on lifting heavy objects or you keep on running or doing whatever, that part of your body just keeps getting more and more injured and you have more and more pain until you finally do something, take a rest and nurse it back to health. Well, the heart is a muscle and it can be injured for any number of reasons. You can get injury due to lack of blood flow to the heart from coronary blockages, injuries due to valve disease, injuries uh, from inflammation or viruses, um, and a whole host of other things. But uh, once the heart muscle is injured, um, it's just like any other muscle in the body. It has to, unlike the back or the knee or whatever that you can rest, the heart muscle has to keep going. Take a day off. It can't take a day off, otherwise you die. And so, um, so your body creates all these hormones that make the heart work in overdrive, and essentially um, tries to help maintain normal circulation. But over time, uh, these hormones are basically overworking the heart in a lot of ways. If you can kind of think of that as an analogy, and it injures and further deteriorates the heart function over time. Um, And there's a lot of medicines that have been studied in huge clinical trials over the course of decades. And a lot of these medicines can also be used to treat high blood pressure, um, can protect the kidneys and diabetes and things like that. But these medicines in heart failure, and specifically in heart failure, help reduce these abnormal hormone levels that are produced when the heart gets injured and is being worked in overdrive and helps protect the heart from getting weaker over time and sometimes even helps the heart improve and heal itself. So do these elevated hormone levels affect mm-hmm. other muscles in our body when besides the heart? And if so, what does that mean for the rest of the, the human system? Um, so there is, as the... Uh, Severity of heart failure worsens. The um, there is there are hormonal changes that happen throughout the body that do cause you to change the metabolism, etc., which uh, essentially makes you waste away. As you you can see, people with really severe heart disease, you'll often see them get really skinny, lose their appetite, lose their fat, lose their muscle, and and some of that's hormonal, some of that is an appetite thing. But yes, it does affect. Uh, you kind of throughout the whole body. So throughout the course of the month, you know, I've been hearing a lot of things on media talking about heart attacks and heart attack symptoms and what to be wary of. And, and I've heard a lot that there are sometimes symptoms that are different in men versus women. Would you be comfortable talking a little bit about that? Yeah. So let me, uh, so uh, let me tell you what a heart attack is, because I think that's really important to understand. And then uh, the difference between that and heart failure. Um, And so a heart attack is a condition where uh, you've had the blood flow to a portion of the heart is compromised because the coronary arteries, which are the arteries that supply blood to the heart, have become blocked up with usually cholesterol or atherosclerotic plaque that's generally built up over you know years of time and then suddenly rupture and create a, an acute clot or 100% blockage. Um, 
So the plumbing gets clogged, the blood doesn't get to the heart, and something quits working. And that working. part of the heart essentially is is starved for oxygen, and if it goes on long enough, then that part of the heart dies. Right. Um, so the essential thing about that is you have there are classic symptoms and there are atypical symptoms. So classic symptoms are the things that you probably have heard about on TV or the news. So uh, chest pain or chest discomfort or heaviness, uh, radiation to the left arm or left shoulder to the jaw, sometimes a little bit of nausea or sweating. But those are kind of the the typical symptoms. Atypical symptoms uh, are sometimes experienced by people that are diabetic, people that are women, uh, people that uh, may have a lot of other chronic diseases. And these could include just severe indigestion, severe nausea, shortness of breath that kind of comes out of nowhere that really doesn't have a good reason, extreme fatigue, um, a sense of impending doom, cold sweat. Um, these sorts of atypical symptoms um, in a person with risk factors should uh, compel us to or compel you to really think hard about whether or not you might be having a heart attack. Excellent. Our guest is Dr. Priyesh Patel, and he is the advanced heart failure specialist at Wake Med Heart and Vascular and also the assistant professor at Duke Teaching in this field. And we'll continue our conversation on heart failure in just a bit. Stick around. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF. Welcome back to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. You can find more about them at transitionslifecare.org. Good evening to you. Jason Kong here with Cooper Linton and Nicole Bruno. And our special guest this evening, we've got Dr. Priyesh Patel, who is the uh, Advanced Heart Failure Specialist at Wake Med Heart and Vascular. He's also an assistant professor at Duke. And we're talking all about heart health, Cooper. And uh, we, were, we were just talking about heart attacks before the break, and uh, we... we we had to cut him off because we had to take a little break there, but we, well, we need to pick back up. Well, we do because I think there's confusion about the difference between heart failure and heart attacks. And these these words get thrown around uh, sometimes inaccurately and often in a way that produces a lot of anxiety. So if we can demystify it, maybe it'll be a little less anxiety producing. So, Dr. Patel, you were you were wrapping up your thoughts there on the difference between a heart attack and, and heart failure. And so I... And at this point now, I'm scared to put cream in my coffee. <laughs> well, don't be afraid. We have we have uh, therapies if you get, have heart disease. But um, uh, so just to uh, repeat and summarize, a heart attack is where the heart is starved of oxygen because of a blockage in the arteries that supply blood to the heart, uh, which can cause heart injury and even. Uh, death to some of the heart muscle cells if they don't get enough oxygen for long enough. There are emergency procedures that can um, essentially um, treat slash cure heart attack by opening up those arteries. So if you do have symptoms of a heart attack, either typical symptoms like chest pain, discomfort, rating to the left arm, then seek immediate care or atypical symptoms like severe nausea, severe shortness of breath, diaphoresis or, or sweating, uh, make sure you seek medical attention. Um, so that's a heart attack. Heart failure is, uh, again, a condition where the heart has either become weakened or stiff and uh, therefore cannot circulate blood efficiently. Heart attacks can weaken the heart muscle because you injure the heart uh, because you don't have oxygen going to parts of the heart, which can cause heart failure. 
because you've injured the heart. And so heart failure is kind of a, a end stage pathology of various different types of heart disease that injure the heart to the point that it just can't circulate blood so efficiently I can, anymore. I might survive the heart attack. Correct. But the implications of the heart attack on the heart itself may actually cause me to have subsequent heart failure. Correct. That's that's correct. And so a heart attack, if it's treated early and everything is opened up in terms of your blockage and you're on the right medicines and you live a healthy lifestyle after that, um, you may never have heart failure. But if your heart gets injured enough, um, or you have subsequent heart attacks which injure the heart muscle, or even if you have enough injury that you start that hormonal cascade where the heart gets injured more and more over time, you can develop heart failure, which is where you get that inadequate um, ability to circulate blood and oxygen efficiently. So I sometimes hear the term ejection fraction. Is that related to this? Yeah, ejection fraction I mean, is... That's a, that's a whole lot of work. That yeah, sounds like it's an expensive Yeah, it's, it's an important... It's an important thing to know, and so if you have if you ever do see a cardiologist and you get an echocardiogram, which is a sonogram of the heart, then one of the most important pieces of information on that sonogram is something called the ejection fraction, and that's the amount of blood or the proportion of blood that is pumped out of the heart with every heartbeat. In a normal heart, at least half of the blood is pumped out with every heartbeat, usually even more than that, around 60%. Um, in a person whose heart is injured and they have reduced ejection fraction, that means that they're pumping out less than 40% of the heart volume per beat, then we say that they have heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, and then there are specific therapies for that. Some people can develop heart failure not because the heart is injured, but as I mentioned, the heart gets really stiff because of high blood pressure over time, because of certain types of genetic diseases sometimes, for sometimes from infiltrative diseases where scar tissue forms inside the heart. And um, in those cases, you can have heart failure with a preserved ejection fraction where the ejection fraction remains normal, but the heart is stiff and just can't fill and empty as it should. Wow. That's complicated. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about, you know, let's say I'm caregiving for somebody who is involved with heart failure and they're living at home. And what are some of the things that we can do to kind of help that person maintain as healthy of a life as possible? So the really important things, I think, are to make sure you take all of your medicines religiously. Um, as I said, these medicines have been tested over decades of time, and we know they improve both uh, survival and symptoms in heart failure when you take them. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's very important to take all your medicines as prescribed, go to all of your doctor's appointments to make sure that uh, if you are starting to get sicker, that you are um, identified as getting sicker early so that we can find strategies to either manage it with medicine or make referrals for more advanced therapies like certain types of clinical trials, uh, defibrillators, pacemakers, makers, um, uh, heart transplant, uh, mechanical heart pumps that can be implanted surgically. There's a whole host of options for treatment, but you kind of have to be identified earlier. Mm -hmm. 
lifestyle changes you can make or trying to avoid salt. So we usually instruct people not to eat more than two grams of salt in a day. Oh, my goodness. Because salt makes you uh, hold on to fluid. There goes my Lay's potato chips. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, We advise people to weigh themselves on a daily basis. So if you notice your weight going up um, rapidly, so generally we'll say like two pounds in a day or five pounds in a week, that is suggestive that you're building up fluid Mm because most people don't put on fat weight that quickly. (laughs) And um, that is something that needs to be managed before it gets out of control and you end up in the hospital with excess fluid. Um, And uh, then trying to be as active as possible. So uh, if you're active, the despite whatever your oxygen delivery capability is from the heart, the more active you are, the better your muscles are able to utilize and are conditioned to use whatever oxygen is delivered to them. So you'll feel better, be stronger, and be more able to tolerate any of the more advanced therapies I I kind of mentioned briefly earlier um, and heal from those if you have to end up going down those pathways. So there seems to be a link that you often hear about, and they're trying to build correlations, at least things I hear on the periphery, about the link between diabetes, our obese society, and heart disease. How does all that fit together for a layperson? It is incredibly complex. There's actually a whole field of, of research now with uh, diabetes and heart disease and specifically even with heart failure. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been some clinical trials recently showing that there are specific drugs that improve mortality in patients with certain types of uh, cardiovascular disease, including heart failure, which in the past, a lot of the classic diabetes medications had not been shown to do that. Mm-hmm. And so So there are thoughts that there are metabolic Mm -hmm. issues that are um, uh, related uh, with the heart disease. There are also just the, the fact that Um, Diabetes causes microvascular disease, which um, can lead to um, more significant coronary atherosclerosis or advanced coronary atherosclerosis with um, coronary disease or heart attacks, essentially accounting for about two-thirds of the causes of heart failure in America. And so it's all fairly complex and hard to kind of Put together in a simple way, sure. but but it's it's uh, so there really is a link. There really is a link, but it's very complex, and people are studying it now. So, how do I live forever? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, no one gets to live forever, unfortunately, but. Um, if you happen to get sick enough that you are short of breath all the time and are markedly symptomatic, then there are options to manage that. Um, and the two therapies that uh, really improve mortality in those sorts of situations are heart transplant and a surgically implanted mechanical heart device called an LVAD or left ventricular assist device. Uh, both of those therapies have become more mature over time. Survival with those are excellent as well as quality of life. Um, And so if you do feel like you're having worsening symptoms of heart failure or shortness of breath or whatever, then it is worth uh, discussing with your cardiologist whether referral to a heart failure specialist is worth it to um, maybe discuss those as options. Well, thanks for helping demystify this. 
Yeah, we appreciate you taking some time to uh, uh, explain all this to us. We've learned a lot. Dr. Priyesh Patel, he is the Advanced Heart Failure Specialist at WakeMed Heart and Vascular. You can find more about them at wakemed.org, and he's also an assistant professor at Duke. A quick break and back, you're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF. Welcome back to Aging Matters, a service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF. And the show is all about the care and comfort that surrounds you. Jason Kong here with Cooper Linton, Nicole Bruno. And uh, Cooper, we're going to revisit a, a topic here that's very important to us and to our audience, and that's assisted living and the importance of planning. Well, the issue continues to emerge as we look at the questions we're getting from caregivers, uh, the issues that we continue to see coming up frequently in our elder community. We know that there's a couple of things that always emerge. One of them is the need to plan ahead, but there seems to still be confusion in that planning process regarding what does assisted living mean or what does the adult care home environment mean. That's the the North Carolina language for it. Uh, And so we've brought on a guest, English Edwards, who's the area manager for business development with Sunrise Senior Living. Uh, and, and English is very experienced in the market, understands the assisted living market, and we just wanted to to get you to join us for a conversation about what are the differences between assisted livings and how do people plan ahead? Not just that they should, but what does that look like? So, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, you know, I think it I think it looks like any research that you do. You know, if you're going to buy a car, you're going to figure out what type of car you want. You know, do you want a sedan? Do you want a four-wheel drive, and you're going to do some research. It's, it's the same with senior living. It's recognizing that mom or dad may be at home doing great, driving, going to church, going to social activities, um, but they may be 80 or 85, and at any moment that can change. And so thinking ahead for what that might look like if their situation changes and going ahead and, and putting some some plans in place to know what's out there if something does happen. I think people often don't know when they should be planning ahead. I was on the phone the other evening with a caregiver who had called me because he felt like he needed um, a live-in aid. Actually, he wanted just a few hours of aid care per day and for his his family, for his parents. And in a discussion with him, I realized his parents really are not safe to be at home at all. And that home may not be a realistic place for them. And so I don't know what transpired in his world prior to that phone call, but he was unaware of what he didn't know and therefore didn't plan ahead. How do, when should people start? How do they, how do they get started doing this? Because I think it's just nebulous and overwhelming. Yeah, it is. And I, I always would say to families when they were sitting in front of me, you know, talking about their loved one, that I think you become a caregiver before you realize that you became a caregiver. You know, it starts with, you know, that you are calling to check on mom, you know, every morning on your way to work. And then you're calling on your way home. And then you're stopping by. And then you're providing meals. And before you know it, you're spending the night because you're you're scared that well, something's going to happen to mom at night. These things sneak up on us. They do. They do. Because you're right. It's a phone call. It's a trip to the doctor's office. And it's almost like watching your child grow. Mm-hmm. You, it, you, you suddenly step back and say, well, how did they get this big? Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, little by little, year after year. Yeah. And how did I get this involved? You know, where where did I where did I lose my life that now became this caregiver for my loved one? I think, you know, in my experience with caregivers is I don't think we spend a lot of time as children thinking about the ultimate care of our parents. You know, it's just kind of a weird spot to be in where you're kind of, you know, no matter how much older I'm getting day by day, I'm always the little girl. And no matter all that I know in this field, it doesn't really matter because they don't listen to me. So... Very true. So, you know, and then, of course, people who aren't in this field, you know, they're they're getting older, their loved ones are getting older, but you don't really think about having to ever make a decision with or for a parent. So how do we get there, do you think, philosophically, as a society? You know, we do caregiving so differently in this country than other countries. Mm-hmm. How do we start kind of thinking about that? Because I know there's an awful lot of caregivers, and it's, I think, you know, very valid people quite feel quite resentful they're getting to be closer to retirement age and then suddenly the dreams that they had to do they can't do because now they have to take care of mom Mm -hmm. yeah I mean I I think it's it's having those hard conversations it's recognizing that your parent is aging and it is a hard conversation to have I mean it's not easy to sit down with your parent. And I know I tried to do it multiple times with my parents. <laughs> my parents say, what are you trying to kill me? <laughs> yeah. You know, you want all my money? No, I don't want your money. <laughs> no, I don't no. want it. Um, but, I, you know, I think for, for our situation, it was the, you know, untimely and unexpected death of both of my in-laws that that prompted my parents to want to have that conversation. For me, just to say, I want to honor your wishes. I want to know what you want to do. And so, you know, lots of times I think what works is just doing some of that research without telling your parents oh, and then yeah, the stealth approach. sneaking in around the back. Um, but I, I feel like I'm a teenager yeah, again. Like, <laughs> you know, and then going to them and saying, hey, let's talk about, you know, I know you guys want to stay at home. Have you ever considered an independent living community or a continuing care retirement community? Um, I know some people who've moved into one. Here's some information on it. Let's just start the conversation especially when they don't need it. And, you know, I think taking a rather pragmatic approach might be appropriate where you um, really do some cost comparisons. Because a lot of people, bottom line is, most of this is not paid for by Medicare and Medicaid. You're paying for this out of your pocket. And you have to figure out how to make this work, whether it's siblings helping to pitch in or the family has money to be able to do it. And maybe comparing apples to oranges, you know, let's just imagine, let's just pretend you have this diagnosis. If we want to keep you at home, 24 7 and you know provide some of these types of services this is what it will cost if we want to you know have you move into a residential community this is what it might cost and sometimes I think you know finances are one of those topics that it's just a people don't talk about and it gets really uncomfortable but I think if even sometimes if you lay out you know I did some research on my own mom just thinking about the future you know what I planner I am kind of put it on you I want to do what's the right thing and you know here's what I've found what do you think because I think a lot of times people don't realize what they're Medicare will and won't pay for until they're faced with it, and then they're completely shocked. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, we don't do a good job of planning for any end of life care. You know, we don't have those discussions because they're not fun discussions to have. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we if we just have them and get it all out on the table, then we don't have to have it anymore. And we know. We know what that cost is going to be. We know what your parents' wishes are. We've done the research, so we have some options and a, and a, a plan A and B and C lined out so that we're ready and not scrambling when someone's in the hospital. English, I think it's like turning the lights on. 
I mean, I remember as a kid, you're scared of what's in the dark. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you turn the lights on, you realize it's not as scary as you thought it was. Mm-hmm. It's the fear. It's that anxiety. And when you turn the lights on in, you have a, a transparent, open discussion, whether it's about where you're going to live or what type of care you want related to a specific diagnosis or discussion about filling out advanced directives or finances all of those things, the, when the lights come on, a lot of the fear goes away. Mm-hmm. And you realize that the topics itself really aren't that spooky. We've been dealing with medical issues our whole lives. We've been dealing with financial issues our whole life. We've all lived somewhere our whole lives. Mm-hmm. Let's turn the lights on and have an open discussion. Yeah. And starting way early gives us time to make decisions that are not crisis-driven. I have never made a decision in my entire life in a crisis that was as good as a decision I could have made if I had started early and involved other people, and it makes all the difference. Absolutely. Uh, and when I, when I navigated uh, placement for my own mother, I was blessed to be able to reach out to some people in our community and said, educate me, because I don't think I actually know what I think I know. Mm-hmm. And I found out I was far more ignorant than I had given myself credit for, and that those people made a big difference. Uh, and, and helping me find a, uh, the right the right fit. Yeah. So, is there such a thing as too early? I don't think there is. I mean, I maybe don't you is. don't need I, NC State students coming yeah, and calling exactly. you saying, "Look, I, you know, I know one day I'm going to get there." Yeah, absolutely. No, but I think you I think you brought up a good point. Is that when we're in a crisis situation, when we've got all this pressure to make a decision, it's never going to be as good as that decision that you could have made with the proper time to research, ask questions, ask people who've been in the similar situation. I mean, you're right. Being in senior living for 20 plus years, there's still a lot that I don't know. So, you know, I would be remiss to not ask my fellow colleagues, you know, here's my loved one situation. What do you, what do you suggest? What do you know about this? And so, no, I think you're, I don't think there's such thing as, as too early. That's a great point. English Edwards, the Area Manager of Business Development for Sunrise Senior Living Communities. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF. Welcome back to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF. Good Saturday evening to you. Jason Kong here with Cooper Linton and Nicole Bruno. And Cooper, uh, it's it's approaching that time of the year where you've got your big advanced directives event. So tell us a little bit about You this. know, everybody knows that I'm like this constant ambassador about advanced directives. And, you know, you're my you're friends, wearing your advanced directive t-shirt tonight. Even my hat. Yes, yeah, my advanced directives nice. hat. and. You know, nobody wants to see me at a cocktail party because I'm like, here, have you signed your advanced directives? It's the documents guy again. Yeah, yeah, the here he comes. Death. <laughs> here he comes. Wants to talk about death and dying. I really don't. And what I want to talk about, who's in charge of your health care if you're not able to speak for yourself? Because most of us want to have a sense of self-control or self-direction in our lives, even, well, sometimes even more importantly, when we're not actually able to literally speak for ourselves, mm-hmm. which... Every spring, we start talking about these advanced directives. Uh, health, National Healthcare Decisions Day is April 16th, uh, which is the day before taxes, and it's, it's really done on purpose, death and taxes. The difference is, you know when your taxes are due. 
you don't always know when you're going to need advanced directives to help guide your care. Uh, and, and often it's guiding care that isn't related to your death. It's really related to how you want to be treated. Um, it could be years before you ever pass away. So it, it's really who's, who's calling the shots and what do you want them to do for you. On April 14th, in the middle of the day, and there's going to be more details coming out on this show and also uh, on the TransitionsLifeCare.org website, uh, is, uh, we'll be have, hosting an event in conjunction with the North Carolina Bar Association and the North Carolina Center for Compassionate Care to provide free advanced directives training, legal services, notary public, copies. Uh, we'll even have, you know, like lunch-style refreshments there. Come on out. We'll ask people to register if they can, but if they can't register, just come out and get the documents handled there's literally no charge for it, including the legal services, courtesy of the North Carolina Bar Association. So April 14th, this is a save-the-date notice, and we'll have more details coming shortly. So this is a chance people can ask questions of you and of the the lawyers as well, right? Ask questions of, uh, of me, ask questions of our attorneys, ask questions of some of the volunteers who are coming out. Um, and we're even planning to have a physician there because last year – we had questions about how would a physician look at these advanced directives or how would someone on EMS look at these directives. And it's a great way to engage uh, uh, your physician, actually, not just a doctor in that class, but your own physician in these discussions. Because part of it is I know my wishes. Now my family knows my wishes. Does my doctor know my wishes? Mm-hmm. But I think on top of that, I can well imagine that I've, I've run into these questions from people before. Well, what does it exactly mean if I choose to have a feeding tube in or not, or a ventilator on or not? And so a doctor can try to explain, I think, that, you know, at end of life when your body is truly trying to shut down, what does it do to your body to then kind of artificially keep it going? Well, there's times that artificial hydration, artificial nutrition make total sense. If someone is in a a temporary state and you need to keep them hydrated, you need to give them nutrition, you need to give them medication, you're in a reversible situation, you need your body to have time to recover, absolutely you may want those things. In other circumstances, you may not. So it's not like a light switch where it's, yes, I want all of this, or no, I don't want all of this. It really is a more sophisticated discussion, and it may be uncomfortable, but it bears having a conversation about it. Being able to talk to experts on the subject and then being able to talk with your family and your medical providers to be sure that everybody's on the same page so that you don't have any surprises and they don't either. Yeah, and uh, I went to the event last year, and I I thought it was great. My wife and I, we went out there, and just having the discussion between ourselves of, you know, how we're filling out these documents and what our wishes were, you know, just having that conversation alone, you know, forget that, you know, we were in and out of there in, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes, uh, you know, forget that all that was convenient. Just having that discussion alone and being provided with those documents, I mean, that that was great. I think people are more afraid of the conversation than Mm -hmm. they really should be yeah it's not that spooky you know people talk about how to raise children they talk about politics they talk about their faith beliefs um and and more relevantly this time of year we start to talk about college basketball and that's when you can end up in some very challenging (laughs) upsetting conversations but these discussions are more spooky in people's minds 
than they really are in reality. And let's just get it out there and talk about it. Yeah, and this gives you a great reason, too. You know, if you're sitting around at Thanksgiving dinner, you know, it, it's kind of awkward to transition from, hey, the gravy's really good to, all right, let's, let's talk way, about it. By the way, I don't want a ventilator. Right. Yeah, yeah but Please if you're, if you're saying, hey, we've got this great opportunity to go down and get this taken care of at no charge, uh, then it's a great reason to have the conversation. It, it's a great reason to have the conversation, but it also opens the door for further dialogue in your family. And then in the future, if your wishes change, it's not as hard to have that conversation the second time because not everybody's weirded out about it. Mm-hmm. It's You've already kind of taken the fear off the table and are just getting down to, what do I want? What do I not want? Under what circumstances do I want things? And, and part of it is who's in charge if I'm not? But the other side of that is who's not in charge? Mm-hmm. Think about it. Are there people in your personal sphere that you love them dearly but you may not want those people making decisions regarding your care. Yeah, probably too emotional or mm-hmm. couldn't follow through on what your wishes or were. Or you got five people, they're going to have a squabble at the bedside. And I'm like, y'all take that somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely something you want to avoid. And again, that is April 14th. Is that the date? April 14th. We'll have more details very shortly on the transitionslifecare.org website. Yes, and we will uh, also update you here on the program, so be sure to uh, tune in next week at 7. And Cooper, we, we need to, t- we always talk about transitions life care, but we don't uh, we don't always dive into exactly what it is and uh, the concept of, of hospice care and what that is. So uh, let's, let's take a few minutes here and dive into that a little bit. Well, I think, well, well, again, we probably should have left the mics on during the break <laughs> to uh, talk a little Not. bit <laughs> <laughs> uh, to talk a little bit about the inpatient facility. And there were some questions that came up during the break about the inpatient hospice facility that we operate off of Trinity Road. They're on the border of Cary and Raleigh. It's um, about one mile west of the uh, RBC Center. Mm-hmm. And there's been PNC some, Center now. PNC Center. Yeah. That, well, I'm reaching back on everything. Today. <laughs> He's like PNC an Arena. Right? The PNC <laughs> Arena. Yeah. So uh, the question came up about: Can people go to the inpatient facility and spend their hospice? time there and like it's a six month or mm-hmm. and it's people think that they do i get calls all the time in reality it's, it's not like that the the hospice facility the hospice home as we call it is a specific level of hospice care there's four levels of hospice care the highest level is what we sometimes call the icu of hospice it's for patients who have such uh, acute needs that we can't handle them in the home because home is where almost every patient tells us they want to be. Mm -hmm. So we strive mightily to keep patients comfortable at home. But if home is not an option, for example, there may be equipment that's needed that you don't have in the home. There may be a level of attention by a nurse or a physician uh, that you can't replicate in the home. The condition is too fragile. The, 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 the patient's symptoms are all over the place. At that point, uh, our staff, in conjunction with your doctor, may work with you to say, look, there's another way to do this care. And at that point, uh, with our assessment of the phys- and the assessment of the doctor, we can move someone into the hospice home. Sometimes that's someone who's been on our service at their house. Mm-hmm. Or that maybe they're coming straight out of the hospital and they just have very acute needs. Stays there are much shorter than our typical stay. Our average length of service in hospice is about two months. 
And by contrast, instead of 60 days, the average time that we have in our hospice home is only about six. So it's a different level of care. Our goal is to get people's symptoms under control and get them comfortable and whenever possible, get them back home. So I think people really truly believe, you know, when somebody is older and they feel like they're near death, that instead of moving them into a traditional assisted living, it's time to move them into the transitions life care hospice home. And and that's not really an option yeah. for most folks. Uh, there are a few homes across the country that are set up that way, but our home is actually too small for it. We only have 30 rooms, and those 30 rooms service a catchment area that has about two and a half million people. Wow. So we just can't pull that off. Right. It's really for the sickest of the sick on hospice, and it's something that's coordinated between our staff and your physician. Very good. And if you want to find more information, transitionslifecare.org is the place to do it. That's transitionslifecare.org. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. We are just about out of time. Thank you so much for listening. We'll do this again next Saturday night at 7. We'll hope you'll join us then. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care on behalf of Nicole Bruno and Cooper Linton. I'm Jason Kong. Have a great night, everyone. This is News Radio 680 WPTF.